Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm doing a podcast with Leanne Lang. I'm guesting on her show. So once upon a time, she was a World Cup level athlete. Then she quit then gained 85 pounds in a year, got married, then divorced a year later. She hated her job, she hated her life, she just kind of gave up on things and hit rock bottom. I didn't need to make this up because this is exactly how she describes herself and definitely part of the bio that she has for her podcast, Alisa Unfiltered. So I'm so excited that after I had done her podcast, she's agreed to be able to come here and be on mine for episode 23 of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And for more information, of course, you can head to extensionmarketing.com. Alisa, so great. I'm sorry, I had to kind of go with that bio because I think that best describes what we're we're in for for the next hour. Yeah. Yeah? I, I 100%. Absolutely. Okay. Th- thanks for having me, too. This is fun. This is really nice. And this is uh, about 15 years in the making, uh, I would think, yeah. right? Something like that. I first interviewed you when I was a sports anchor. Yeah. I think with, it was the new, I think we were called the new RO still back in those days. And I remember covering you with this beautiful, energetic kind of, gung-ho, zest-for-life athlete who was making your mark on the elite Canadian circuit. Like, you were at that elite level uh, mm-hmm. for freestyle mogul skiing, uh, mm-hmm. and you were about to embark on kind of like your World Cup career, I think. Yeah, I was just... I, I either just made the national development team or I was, like, on Ontario team uh, uh, competing at a very high level mm-hmm. when we first met, yeah. And then preceding that, we did, like, a few cool interviews segments mm-hmm. for 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 TV it was really fun actually it's so cool I liked you I yeah. like I remember you because it was interesting years later when I was watching you kind yeah. of you know uh at, at that world cup level I remember going I remember this girl mm-hmm. and I was so glad that you had made it because you kind of the way we had done our videos you were training like you're off ice you're off ice you're off the hill training your land training was yeah. insane yeah yeah the dry land was definitely uh at that elite level you could say mm-hmm. and it's it's fun because like people don't realize how much work goes on off the slopes they just kind of see the end result so it was really fun to work with you because you showed that side it was very cool we're gonna get to because your life has gone through like one crazy roller coaster but I do want to start kind of with where your development happened because I think we're much more aware of freestyle mogul skiing uh pretty much since like the Vancouver Olympics when we started to kind of see six real big continuous success uh on the Olympic side of things because people aren't really associated with World Cup they 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 watch the Olympics. Sure. And they don't yeah. really know the sport until every four years kind of comes about. So how did you get involved? Like, what was the intro for you? Um, the intro was we... My family used to have a chalet up at Tromblon. When we got rid of that place, um, 
all the kids were really upset. So my parents were trying to find a fit for us in Ottawa and our neighbors just happened to be part of the Fortune Freestyle Club. And uh, my mom thought it was a good fit for me and I was really reluctant. I didn't want to do it, but uh, I went into a weekend program and I found sort of like a passion uh, were you there. a good skier? Was I was it be- a good skier. Was it because we, you were a good skier that they she yeah. thought this would work for you? Yeah. So we were, we were a family. I grew up skiing as a family. So we had a chalet at Tramla for years and years. And uh, we skied every... We were weekenders. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So... And at this time, I think I, I was like 14. I was kind of late when it comes to sport development. Like... The long-term athlete development plan for a World Cup mogul skier kind of starts around like eight or nine skiing in a structured program. I didn't really do that. I just kind of skied with my brother in the woods. (laughs) And uh, so, I mean, there wasn't like high hopes for me or anything in that first, uh, that intro year, but I, they had a really good program at Fortune at the time and I excelled very quickly. I do have a gymnastics background, which helped uh, with motor skills and acrobatics because freestyle skiing has a huge hey, acrobatic component. I would have known. Like you, where did you, where were you a gymnast? Cause you. I, Corona. I was a gymnast. How at is that possible? But I was at. Okay. We, if for anyone who has listened to any of my, <laughs> my podcast, my mom owns and runs and started Corona gym club 45 years ago. Yeah. So I would have seen you then. You probably would have. I was there probably, I was very young. I was like sick. Uh, I don't know, probably seven, eight, nine. Mm-hmm. Seven, eight, nine. When I was there, ten, I made pre-competitive, and then um, that was kind of like one of the most traumatizing moments in my life. And I talk about it in my podcast too, because in order to for me to keep going in the competitive program, I had to do the splits to the ground, like to have my pubic bone touch the ground. Mm-hmm. And I tried and tried and tried, and they gave me like a window to get there. But I'm naturally unflexible, so I, <laughs> I actually didn't. I, I got kicked out of the competitive You did program. not get kicked out of the program. <laughs> That's how you, my nine-year-old okay. brain remembers yes. it. It was probably suggested to you that with your amazing athletic ability that you find a sport that might be better suited yeah. For your style of athleticism. Yes. Is that a better one? Yes, exactly. That's a, that's verbatim what they told I'm me. I'm thinking I might have, if you were in that program at that time, I might have just been heading to university. Because I'm, I'm thinking... It was I probably like nine... It was 1988. Oh, no. In 1987, 88, 89, somewhere in there. In the late 80s. Oh, no. I can say that I was still <laughs> happily here in uh, <laughs> high school <laughs> during those years. Yeah. Right? No, I was elementary. No. Gosh, you're an 81 birthday. 81. Okay, I'm yeah. 75. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's not that bad now. But then I do, like, I definitely learned a lot of skill that helped me to advance very quickly in the sport of mogul. So I basically went from, like, a club athlete at Fortune Freestyle to a national team athlete within four years, which okay. is, like, very sort of unheard of. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, yeah. you never really see something like that, especially happening later yes. in a career, right? Yeah. Like, I can see it maybe if you were 10 and by the time you were 14, Yeah, but you're starting to do this at 14. So what were the biggest obstacles? I mean, you were a skier and you were you used to back road. I can yeah. just picture you on Trombla. I can probably picture exactly where you went <laughs> off the mountain. Um, like, what was the training then or the development like over those years? Yeah, it was... Because uh, you're flipping. I mean, you it's yeah. mogul, 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 and then you're doing a, a back layout yeah. or a back flip in between the... So at the time, yeah. the, the, the sport of freestyle hadn't evolved into inverts yet. Okay. It had it was it was uh, illegal. We didn't even wear helmets when <gasps> I first made the national team. Like, it really evolved quickly. The sport progressed quite fast, yeah. and we were sort of pioneers. Like, my my 
generation Mm -hmm. on the team, we pioneered all of the crazy stuff. We led the way for inverts for, um, you know, pushing the sport to the Mm -hmm. next level. Um, so I mean, in those years of development, I, I do think, I do believe that my four years on the national development team is also included in that because that's where I really got a a taste or a a sense of what I had to do and what I needed to do. I was a little bit fortunate back in the club and provincial years because there were not a lot of females in the sport at the time. So, um, this might sound bad, but like, it didn't take much to get to that next level. Once I was on the national team and competing nationally or interprovincially, that's when I started to really face adversity in the sport. You were like, oh, okay, there are other girls yes, doing this. Yes. I'm not just the, oh my God, yeah. you should check out this chick. She's so good on the slopes. There, yeah. You realized there was others around the country that were striving for the same thing. Yeah, and I mean, in the sport, it was kind of interesting because like I, there was this interesting balance between me, my, the, me being a slightly naive and me being super passionate about sport. So I didn't really know what I was getting myself into until I was pretty far advanced. And when I like realized, oh my gosh, I could go to the Olympics or I could ski on the World Cup team or I'm meeting all of these amazing athletes from all around the world. I, I, was, I was already like pretty into it at that point. So I think to be a successful mogul skier, you do have to have... Um, a little bit of crazy in you, a little bit of that night. Like you, you can't think about it too much because it is so intense. It's dangerous. You're yeah. moving really high speeds. You're training really hard, but at the same time, you need to be very smart. <laughs> so it's a balance between that, you know. Well, was it learning? Um, I mean, the physical side of it is uh, like the, I, I look at the aerodynamics of the sport, or like yeah. you, like the knee movement and the side to side, yeah, uh, and. The, the pounding that the legs take. Um, but then I picture what it's like for you at the top, looking down at the hill you're about to go down mm-hmm. and you see these moguls and then you've got to time it for the jump. Mm-hmm. You know, where is the psych- is like, where's the mental preparation to deal with the fear? Cause I'm assuming there's gotta be fear when you're heading down like that. There isn't, there isn't. It depends. Like every course is different. Every jump, landing, takeoff, all of the components of the course change week to week from, traveling to each event or wherever the events are or even your training courses uh weather dependent snow conditions all that stuff kind of factors in but the the point is is that you train and you do enough repetition that you're not afraid anymore like you basically my thoughts at the top of the course for the end of my career like it did my my mentality evolved as i had more experience Mm -hmm. competing was that I knew the second I pushed out of the gate that my body would be able to do what it needed to do. Muscle memory. Yes. Repetition. Yeah. Uh, I often found the same way, especially when I was on balance beam. Yes. You know, when I'm about to embark on three connecting flips in a row going backwards on yeah. the four-inch balance beam, and you just have to go in your head, my body knows how to do this. It's done it thousands and thousands of times that yes. you're going to land it at the end of, of all that. So I totally see that. I also see how it took you being towards the end of your career, the maturity and the understanding of what that mental preparation yes. it wasn't like you had it at 14. It took towards the end of your career to, to, to yeah, have who, that. When I was 14, yeah. who knows? I was probably thinking about boys, about, you know, I'm gonna <laughs> my look equipment, so do I look cool? cool? I know exactly something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, 
in in reality, mogul skiing, the course is about 20, you're skiing between 20 and 30 seconds, just depending on how long. I would say more, for females, it's more like 25 to 30 seconds. That's not a lot of time. You're moving between, you know, 40 and 50 kilometers an hour. You're doing two aerial maneuvers. Your thoughts are, are you have to be super precise with what you're thinking. So I did you know, visualize. I like to visualize in slow motion. That was something that really worked for me. I know there's a lot of visualization techniques. I would do the run over the course of like two minutes in my mind beforehand because yeah, once you, once it's go time, you have that adrenaline. I like, it's like free adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I loved that. I lived for that, that rush. Um, but yeah, if you're not trained to, you know, think about, well, for me, this what worked for me was just to have, you know, three moments to be conscious of and the rest of it's all feel based. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's neat to to see that. How long did you spend? I mean, you have a, a two, you have national titles under you mm-hmm. and you have a World Cup title underneath you. Yeah. Um what was it like getting to that World Cup level and I don't think people understand like you're traveling, you're competing, yeah. you're with Team Canada, you're with your coaches. Like, can you take us through that? Because I, I think we, um, we we put it onto like this hierarchy, right? Like that yeah. is like this golden ticket. And yet I don't think people appreciate that it's not, you know, you're not living like NHL <laughs> all-star players, right? Like, no. Like no. you're living in hotel rooms and, and traveling in vans. Like take us through some of that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean – it, it is there there is some glamour into being a national team world cup gold medal winning athlete if you want to look at it that way it's all about perspective i appreciate all sports all um amateur sports specifically because you're not being paid the big big bucks to you know mm-hmm. do the big things um that is changing a little bit back in my day uh no um however yeah i just saw myself as a regular kid a regular teenager growing up a regular woman in her early 20s I mean I have I had a really close group of girlfriends and really tight family so I was grounded the entire time so I never really like got I never thought I was more than okay were you friends with the girls on the circuit um yes and no okay yes and no I did connect uh with well, I mean, you're living with them 24-7. I mean, I was on the road 200, almost 300 days a year back then. Like, I was never home. Uh, where, where are you? Okay, so... So, you, where... Yeah. yeah. So, basically, the 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 fiscal year or whatever, the, the training year starts essentially April the 1st. So, the last event is somewhere in March, um, and then we have, like, a little tiny break. April 1st, team selections happen. And then, you know, April's kind of our transition month in, in the term of our... our, our our year and then you know we start our general preparation in may so we're in whistler we're in whistler basically may june july august september or at least we were back then now the team travels a little bit more they go to australia there's the snow conditions a little bit better there in the summer because it's winter there so it's winter like snow um we were in quebec a lot at the water ramps there we went to lake placid i was in park city utah for water ramping so that's when you train your acrobatics into, into the, water. the water so it's yeah you're like basically skiing down this like plastic bristle and going off jumps. And Do you like that? I, I loved it. Yeah. Well, jumping was my strength mm-hmm. and that's where I pushed the sport was in jumping. Um, and so, so yeah, so all the way through to September, October, you know, in Canada, there's not a whole lot of snow that's skiable. Uh, 
we oftentimes like found like random glaciers that they would cat ski us in and we could build moguls. It was like kind of crazy. Really? Eh? Yes. That was leading into uh, 2006 uh, Torino Games. But uh, we were in Switzerland in, in October and then November, December in the States, you know, Colorado. This is all training. So we literally were training 40 hours a week. Okay. That's it. Like you're not yeah. in, you know, in Colorado, you know, sitting by the cafes looking at the mountains. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, our days off, like oftentimes I wouldn't even get out of bed because I was so dead. I just needed to like rest, rest, rest. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. Like I've definitely, my passport, I have some very cool passports. Like they're full. I've been all over the world competing from Japan to, you know, well, in Canada here, we competed a lot. I mean, we are Canadian after all. Uh, Switzerland, Austria, all over the place. And uh, it's funny because, you know, like I know airports really well. I know yeah. minivans and buses really well. And I know like little tiny ski towns really, really well. Otherwise, I it, it's kind of a blur. <laughs> it's kind of a blur. I didn't really actually, I wasn't, I was traveling all over the world, but I wasn't traveling. I was you I was, weren't taking it. Were you able to take a moment to reflect on where you were? I because I mm. think your personality now, you'd sit on top of that mountaintop, do a yoga, and, oh, and yeah. take in your, you know, take in the serenity for an hour. I, and that's not what you were able to do back then. No, at all. but my focus was a lot different than it. It was very narrow. I was, I was, um, I was really trying to achieve a goal of going to the Olympics. That's what I wanted to do since I was a kid. My Olympic dreams and gymnastics was cut off short very early, but, um, but yeah, so I, I definitely had like the blinders on for, I would say like 10 years. That's a long time. It's a long time. I didn't see anything, but, but you know, my goals in skiing. Okay. So what happens when you're 10 years focused on one (laughs) narrow, very slim chance because not many people in the world get to experience an Olympic games? Yeah, so every four years, uh, a maximum of four female uh, mogul skiers go to the Olympics. Uh, so my my lead up was, I well, I guess what happened was I just didn't handle the pressure the way you know in the best way possible. I my lead up was I I had a. I put a lot of pressure on myself. I. It's interesting because now when I reflect on it, I really feel as though I had a fear of success. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be successful after all. So I would sabotage myself a lot. Like if there was a big event and I was training really, really well, something would always happen to you know hinder my performance or I'd put myself in a position that I would hinder my performance. I. And I had no idea I was doing this at the time. And even if 20,000 people told me, I wouldn't have even been able to hear it until, like, until now, till I've been out of it for so many years and I can look back. Um, so basically what happened was I um, was the second ranked female in Canada going into the Olympic year. And the qualifications were you could use you had to use four results to go to the Olympics. So it's basically an accumulation of four results over 18 months. Mm-hmm. So it's basically two winter competitive seasons. Any Canadian female World Cup athlete could use four results. And I was ranked second going in. 
And my first, my first event of the season was in teen, uh, France, and I qualified second going into the final round. So I was like, this is, this is my event. This is going to like be my Olympic birth. And, uh, I had a fabulous run. I landed the bottom jump. And for some reason, I to this day have no idea what happened. I guess I landed like in a little, they chopped the landing. Mm -hmm. So to make it soft, I landed in a piece of snow that was like a little catchy. We call them snow snakes. Um, it like caught, it like held onto my foot a little bit and I just deviated out of my line. I didn't fall. I didn't make a, um, a spectacle or anything like that. I just kind of deviated a little bit and it was enough to bump me down into 12th place, which is the last place in the final because top 12 goal. So you went from feeling like you had just... Yeah, and I was like, oh, well, that was stupid. Okay, so I had like three or four events left to qualify and each one just like ticked me down. So I just went from second to third to fourth um, and they're taking four women. At this point, my parents had tickets to the Olympics. They had flights to Italy. Everyone was going, like there was big... I had a newspaper article. It was called The Road to Torino. I was getting interviewed. I was all over the news in Ottawa. And uh, because there's not a lot of mogul skiers that come from yeah. Ottawa, right? So, right. like, it was, was kind of <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, the last event, it was in this place called Madonna, Italy. It was very cool. Uh, and I actually was having a nervous breakdown. The top of the course, I was not thinking anything but the Olympics. It was like the worst mindset of all time. Uh, and I, I knew that I needed to think about the process in which I could achieve the outcome. And that's kind of where I was like pulling my mind to like, you need to take this, you need to like take a step back and, and really just ski for fun. Like do what you've always done. This is ridiculous, Elisa, like, holy cow. So I actually had an amazing performance in Madonna. It was probably the best run I had done of the week. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed to come I, all I needed was a top 12 and I was like, I make finals every week. Like all I need is a top 12 to go to the Olympics. This is my time. I was super nervous. I crossed the finish line and like the relief inside of me, like, I don't even know if anyone can appreciate that, like relief of like, Oh my God, you did it. However, freestyle skiing is a judged sport and so the judges, you know, it's not like they disagreed with my run. Uh, they didn't necessarily score me like they normally do for the quality of my turns and my jumps and my all my speed combined. Uh, and I ended up 13th. So I basically like missed going to the Olympics by one position. And uh, that was basically the beginning of of the end <laughs> and here comes the podcast <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by extension marketing they're a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business i can speak to this personally as i've been using the extension marketing team to help me launch and grow my business founder pat whalen has been a lifesaver for me a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com. <laughs> oh, because that that was the trigger. That was and, the trigger. Uh, you know, you've got parents with tickets yeah. and flights to Torino and to watch their daughter compete at the Olympic yeah. Games, and you miss it by a spot. 
and do to say the world comes kind of crumbling, crashing. Yeah, it, it was almost like a slow avalanche. Well, of, of it was slow. It was like slow motion. If, yeah, if I can say that, because I I actually what happened in the next like twelve to twenty four hours was just so surreal to me. It was like a movie it was like a scene out of a movie in my mind when I like replay what happened so I saw the score sheet and I like literally like I think my my like soul left my body (laughs) and I think I a part of me literally died when I saw that and I knew that I wasn't going um and I I kind of like zombie walked back to my my room and I, I I there wasn't I don't know how I came to this decision to uh, lay in my bed and watch episodes of Seinfeld because that's what I did. I like didn't talk to anybody. I just like literally went into my room and opened my laptop and watched Seinfeld episodes randomly for hours. I can't even tell you how long I I listened. I watched those for. I know I had a roommate. She came in and out. She was going to the Olympics. We didn't really talk about it. We I don't think she knew what to say. We just kind of like it was like yeah, one of those moments. Yeah. It would have been hard for her, right? Because oh, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming would have trained and competed and yeah. traveled, and here she is trying not to. I mean, she's wanting to celebrate her achievement and, yeah. and watching you with such a misfortune. Yeah, uh, it would have been hard. Yeah, so I um, got a knock on my door at about uh, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. It was like at in the evening, late evening, and uh, my my. It was my coach, and he. It was the first time I talked to him since I left the ski hill, uh, and he told me that I needed to pack up my stuff immediately because there was a bus taking us all to the Milan airport that was leaving in forty-five minutes or an hour or something like that. And I was like, "What?" <laughs> I'm like, "Milan airport? Like, what the hell? I don't have a ticket home. I don't have, like, I can't go to the airport right now. It's the middle of the night." And it was interesting because he didn't real he didn't talk to me about the performance at all. He didn't say anything. He just told me to pack up my stuff. And I said, why do I have to leave? And he told me because he didn't want um, the non-Olympians to pull down the Olympic team. He didn't want our moods to spoil the celebration of, of them going to the Olympics. Now, the Olympics were like two and a half almost three weeks away at this point but they just wanted all the riffraff to leave and I wasn't part of the team so they like literally kicked me out it was like the most outrageous thing I've ever experienced in my life it was it was it was it 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 basically like was a giant building block to the turn of my career um because yeah I went on this bus they dropped me off at the Milan airport and uh have I didn't you know broken what to do. down crying yet? Like, have you I don't had even like know. a full I, release? I I don't I don't I actually don't remember ever crying. I know it happened, but I in my brain I can't remember a time where I actually cried about it. I like was in like this shock. Uh, I got I got to the airport. I I was like I guess I go to a ticket counter and I this woman she was amazing because there was no flights back to ottawa at 
a, it was like basically 3.30 in the morning. It was, well, we got to the airport at 3.30 in the morning. The ticket counter opened like at 5 a.m. or something like that when I went. And so we didn't sleep all night. I was like dying. I looked like a probable, I probably looked like a disaster person. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so this lady was so helpful. She like found me, she routed me all throughout the world and she got me home. Uh, and the one-way ticket cost me just over two thousand dollars, and they like it was the old like printout mm-hmm. ticket. Remember those old yeah. airline tickets? And she like with like the carbon fiber, yeah. you remember those, yeah. or carbon copy paper? She like gave me my ticket. I still have it because it was like I don't know. It was symbolic for some reason. I have an attachment to that ticket because that moment was just like okay, I'm going home. And uh, I, that's what happened. And so when I got home, there wasn't like this big celebration, me in the airport with my... That you had envisioned. That I envisioned. Yeah. It was just my poor mom. <laughs> my mom, she was dying. Oh. Anyways, so she... Yeah, so I that was it. I went home and I didn't hear from my coaches or anyone within Canadian Freestyle for almost six weeks. It was like unbelievable the lack of support and I didn't know how to handle this I needed support that's exactly what I needed I just got a message saying like why aren't you going to Japan because Japan was the next series of World Cup events post Olympics and I was just like are you kidding me right now like I'm I'm done I basically retired on the spot uh, and went into um, a serious depression like it was a very dark time I like lost my identity because I that's all I wanted to do and I I, at this point I was like 24 years old and or 25 I guess um and I didn't I didn't want to go another four years I didn't think that that I yeah this was 2006 Torino games was like my Olympic year and I blew it and I knew that I blew it and I blamed myself and I lost my identity. So I had nothing, like I didn't know, I had no, I didn't know what to do. That was it. I just, all I knew to do was to lay in bed and eat. (laughs) That's what I did. I laid in bed and I ate and I drank alcohol and I like, I, tried to escape with alcohol and I drank a lot every single day and that's when like um I don't know I I I basically made a vow that I would never do another squat again I would never go to the gym I basically hated mogul skiing like immediately I hated did you watch the Olympics I did I watched the Olympics uh that's a that's a good question a lot of people ask me that because I I I had to I had like that was the one piece of like sanity for me like I had to watch it it's I my friend Jennifer Heil she won the Olympics that year and um I had to watch it for her maybe mm-hmm. um she after she won like if you ever watch the YouTube clip like her eyeballs in the gate like oh my god I was like dying watching it when she crosses the line and sees that she wins she like lets out that like that story scream of just relief and it was it's so powerful it's so moving like even when I watch it now like I feel like it was this that day watching it um anyways it's interesting because Jen was uh she won the Olympics she was my friend on the team she 
called me the next day. So like she just won the Olympics. She had media all over the place and she found time to just see if I was okay. And she called me from Italy for like, I don't know, we only talked for like five minutes or something. It wasn't a long conversation, but it was just a nice little check-in. Um, and, uh, just goes to show like her personality is just so caring and generous and amazing but yeah I think it also goes to show I think people don't realize when you're training and living years of traveling and training and with similar goals and and similar dreams like there's a bond there's an attachment even when you're competing against that person day in and day out right because you have to keep in mind you were a competitor she was one of those four spots yeah um but I think any athlete when they see a competitor down like or you know crumbling the way you were like you you, yeah. you have a sense because there's also a fear too that could have been any could have been anyone you know oftentimes right sometimes you have a great day out there sometimes you don't but it's nice to know that she did that yeah you know like is. and I remember those moments too so you have this five minutes of feeling okay this this teammate of mine is checked in but yeah as soon as that event's over and the Olympics continue on you're back to drinking and eating and staying in bed yeah so yeah so that was she basically just val- helped me to validate my feelings in a one way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. Like, um, but also validate that I am su- like that I'm suffering and that I was. You know, people don't really talk about the ones, the athletes that just miss the games. Like every single sport, every single game, there are mm-hmm. a handful of people that are in that position. Uh, like fourth, fifth, sixth place in Canada. Like that's pretty freaking good. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have always felt like like it's like on um, like the perimeter, right? With so many things, and it's so hard to be on that perimeter because yeah. you're so good and you're ninety nine percent better than the rest. But you're just you're yeah. missing that that one thing that kind of puts you to that that next level. Like it's, I think fourth is the worst place. <laughs> In my case, it was fifth because we, yeah, but fourth yeah, place but I the think, podium, you know, like, just off yeah. the podium. Oh man, I, I know. The that for me always is is really the toughest. Like, yeah, uh, and that's where most people, the fourth, fifth, sixth is where, and there's such a a group of them, and and I wonder what goes on mentally. Looking back at all of this now, I mean, in my reflection of my career I I actually believe that being fourth place or fifth for the Olympics was the position that um you really learn the most about yourself and can grow the most as a person and it shows you a different side of life and about hard work so I get that but you're saying that now I'm saying years, that years later. Years later, because yeah. you couldn't have told yourself that in the year and months that followed no. this darkness. And so I, I'm hoping that there's others that are listening to this who maybe have are going through it or who kind of realize they might be coming out of it uh, yeah. or who fear it. You know, you have athletes right now who fear what retirement, what life after is going to be like. And so if you don't mind, because this is, this is a dark this is the dark part yeah um because going from a, this elite athlete to being completely overweight yeah am I, is that fair like oh yeah so, an 85 yeah. Oh, pound yeah. weight gain of you eating and drinking and, and watching tv and staying in bed like yeah that's it's so drastic I can't even visualize it yeah 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 uh it uh, I mean and this happened over the course of a year like I I went from 
a super fit, you know, uh, 19, 20, 21% body fat, like athlete, which at the time was like where I needed to be. I had an eight pack. I was, you know, the fittest I'd have ever been in my life to, or I had ever been in, in my life to, um, to an obese person. So I, I, the most I ever weighed myself was, was, uh, 200, I was just under 230 pounds. Um, and it like the weight was just a reflection of how I felt about myself. It was just, I wanted to punish myself. I overate to fill a void, an unfillable void because I, it's all I could do. It's all I could do. I really, it took me about, it. I would say about six months post-retirement. Uh, um, oh, well, in that time frame, like I was um, offered a job to coach the Ontario Freestyle team. So mm-hmm. I announced my retirement that following March um, and Ontario Freestyle was like, ooh, we're losing our coaches here. Let's bring her in. We're going to train her. So I, I went through like an advanced, a super quick, well, not it wasn't quick. I did all the work, but I advanced through my coaching levels very quickly, um, sort of under the mentorship of uh, Ontario Freestyle. I started coaching. Um, I started coaching. Mm-hmm. I I had dreams of going to school. I wanted to be a physiotherapist. Uh, I wanted to work with athletes in one way, shape, or form. But at that stage I was like I might as well coach because I need to make money somehow mm-hmm. and I'm really good at this sport so I'm just gonna stay in it um on a different spectrum I guess but uh so I got into coaching uh and so like six months post Olympics I was full-on coaching the team I was in Whistler and that's kind of when I started to not realize that I was super overweight but like I had some awareness that my lifestyle was was uh, unhealthy to say the least so but you did not have your mom or like your parents like nobody was, really knew what to say like they didn't no know one, how to okay yeah no one really knew like I um the you know my fr- I, I I pretty much I remember telling people I can't talk about it don't talk to me about it be like I I can appreciate that you're upset too and that this affects you but I don't know what to say and I I can't talk about it so we just kind of like it just kind of I never dealt with it I never ever ever dealt with it there's constantly an elephant in the room that you're just choosing to let sit there yeah sure the the elephant was more present for I think my family and friends than Mm -hmm. for me like I just like I had to I had to like literally just let it go in some way because I I, I get that, but I'm but you've got your siblings and your parents yeah. who are watching you suffer. Yes, understand that you're in in pain and yeah. are dealing with this loss. Right, you've retired, you've lost your identity, yeah. uh, and then at the same time watching your health take a drastic turn. Right, to yeah. see this woman that is in the best shape of her life and and then yeah. and destroying. I don't want to say it, but destroying yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, and were there relationships? Was there romance? Like, was there? Yeah. At the so time? I was. I was with. I was. I had a boyfriend at the time when all this was going. When I was doing all this, now he had his own um, athletic goals too. That kind of came crumbling down. Both of us together, because he tore his ACL. Used to play baseball uh, for the Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> I can't talk Baltimore Orioles, um, and he, we. 
ended up just kind of sort of in this downward spiral, spiral together. I was staying at my mom's during the, the dark times. I, I lived there still. Um, but then we like moved in together and yeah, I was in a relationship. It was a very unhealthy one. I ended up marrying this person. Um, and while you're still, yeah. So I was like looking for some thing in my life to bring me like happiness and joy, I guess. I, I mean, looking at the, at the time I was like very much in love with this person. He did not treat me very well. I probably didn't treat him very well either to be fair. Uh, we You're just, going through the worst times of your it life. It was really again. bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like there, there was like, I guess, um, I guess it would have been, so where are we? 2006. I got married in 2008. So two years later we got married. Um, you know, I was just kind of coasting through life, like just doing the grind, the daily grind, just like waking up, doing my work, eating, drinking, acting, like an irresponsible person uh and then going to bed and waking up again feeling like crap probably hung over eating drinking coaching I was responsible for athletes at this time and I was trying to like I actually realized that I I had a knack for it and that I was actually producing athletes and connecting with them in a different way because I I my coaching style was more feel-based it was more, you know, um, I wanted to make connections with the athletes and see how they felt about things and use that knowledge to help direct them. Whereas it wasn't like for me, my entire life was all technical. It was like technical skiing, technical skiing. It, it was, there was no emotions involved. You coached how you wished maybe you had yeah. been coached. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, but at the development level, when you're dealing with like 14, 15, 16 year olds, they connect with that immediately. So they feel supported and then in turn, they want to work for you. Mm-hmm. It's not just technical all the time. I mean, there is a tremendous amount of technical ski ability, but there's also that other part. So, um, I, I realized that um, that was that was good. The anyway, coaching part was good. The coaching part so was good. So that's good. The one time of the day where you were not on the couch eating yeah. and drinking or doing – you were – what you were able to accomplish with these athletes was great. Yeah, but Did, I discounted that because I thought I was a piece of shit. Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> I had like really felt like unworthy of all the things. So it like – so I got married. I was in a toxic relationship at this time. I, my job, I mean, was probably the only good thing that was happening. But at the same time, like, I was so overweight. I had, I wore, like, an extra large ski suit. I couldn't even keep up with the kids. Like, I couldn't lead by example. So there was, like, a, a ceiling to where I could take the team and where I could take the kids. And there was there was a moment in my life um, – I had discovered that my husband was cheating on me and it was like this whole dramatic thing. Um, and I like woke up one day and I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw, I didn't recognize who I was looking at at all. I had like this massive face. I was this body that was unrecognizable. It was like one of the first times I realized that I was fat. And this was like maybe three years later. I didn't even realize I was fat. 
it never crossed my mind, even though I, I was, I had to buy a whole new wardrobe. I was like, yeah, I remember walking because we traveled so much with the team still, because I was coaching provincial level. It's, you still travel quite a bit. I, I couldn't walk down the aisle of a, of a, of an airplane without hitting every single person that was sitting there because I was so wide that like, I would, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to walk through there. Anyways, I, I, I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, Elisa, what the F are you doing? And that voice was so strong. And that question was so deep inside of me. It was like for the first time, like my inner spirit was crying out and I heard it and I was able to listen to it. Did you cry at that moment? <laughs> like, because because I, I know that because you just said like that inner that inner spirit, right? Yeah. Because you had already mentioned when you saw the thir- coming in thirteenth result, yeah, that your soul died. Yeah. So you have a sense of your soul died, and then to have three years later, yeah. the spirit awaken. It was was it almost like a rebirth? Like you had lost one part and then there was 100%. a rebirth of something saying, "Okay, we're going to start this again." 100%. Like oftentimes people I've heard, you know, change happens in a variety of ways. Some people change is like very slow, incremental, and other times there's like a massive explosion that creates chaos and change. So like the Olympics was one of them, and this moment, even how, even though it was so small, was another one. So I like literally from that point on, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> who are you? And then I started to figure that out. Okay. Uh, As we're hoping others, and there are people like they have, it, like I, it's that aha moment, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So you're looking at in the mirror, you don't recognize yourself. There's this burning new energy kind yeah. of coming through. Like, how do you then take those? first step you leave the bathroom yeah what are the first steps that you take like this is where I find like mm-hmm. this is where life lessons mm-hmm. happen like what part of knowledge did you take with you to be like okay what's the first thing I'm gonna do uh that's a really good question I I I had no idea and I think just trusting in that voice was enough for me to carry on with my day. I probably existed in the exact same way that I normally did for a little, for a few days anyways. And I started to piece together, what do I want my life to look like? I don't want, I can't even believe my life looks like this right now. What do I want it to look like? And I started to, I don't, I don't, I don't like the word goals, goal setting, but I started to like think about where I want to be in five years. It's not, it was not in that place that I was. So I actually took a journal and I started to journal. Now, I also uh, was really fortunate enough to be connected with um, my spiritual gangster. Her name's Adele Stratton. She's a holistic healer. She's a mental coach, life coach. Um, And I started seeing her. And that's when I started like journaling and basically was the start of me bringing awareness to my thoughts and to my beliefs about myself was that was the start. And I mean, I did that for like a year. Um, I didn't leave my husband right away. I stuck around for, did he know that you had had this aha moment? No, No. nobody knew except for Adele. I call her Yoda by the way. Yeah. Yeah. She's my Yoda. Um, Nobody knew because I I didn't know what I was I didn't know what I was feeling and 
there like back in 2009 2010 I know that's not that long ago the spirituality was not as open and freely discussed as it is Mm -hmm. today so like I didn't really know who to talk about this stuff to so Adele was like perfect and yeah I started journaling and I would write down the most horrendous things she basically asked me to write down uh what I thought about myself what were my thoughts and like it was pretty bad. Like, you're a disgusting pig. You're an effing loser. No one's ever going to love you. All these things. And I would just write them down. I'm like, holy crap. This is bad. I'm thinking really bad stuff. I had no idea. I had no idea I was even thinking these things. And then it it led to me writing down my beliefs about myself, which were also very bad. Uh, and then how, how I got out of the dark days is uh, is I a, became aware of what my thoughts were and how bad they were. And B, I started practicing stopping them. It wasn't like I could, it wasn't like I could change them right away either. But when I heard myself saying like, I would drop, I don't know, a pencil on the ground and be like, oh, you're an idiot. You're such a loser. I'm like, well, why would I even say that? I dropped a pencil and it made a noise and someone looked at me. You know what I mean? And I would punish myself with these like internal thoughts. And I know there are thousands, millions of people out there that are in that same Mm -hmm. place. Like you make a little tiny mistake. So I started replacing those moments with, oops. (laughs) It sounds so simple. (laughs) It sounds so simple, but like that is like where it started. And then it like, you know, I don't want to say snowballed. There was a snowball effect, but it kind of is like that. You're able to catch yourself more and more. Now, as I, um, I was doing this, I started to gain a confidence in a real life setting that I had never experienced before because I had confidence in skiing. Yeah. But remember I had like the blinders Mm -hmm. on. Um, so now I'm like in living my life in this world and I'm like supposed to be a responsible adult. I'm acting like a child. I'm thinking like, the worst thoughts ever but now I'm finally able to see there's a different way so I that's when I had the confidence to leave my husband I moved in with my mom I was 30 years old I'm like mom I'm moving in and she was like yay I'm so happy (laughs) that's the best response from a parent I know right that really yeah uh and uh that I, I I I started running I, I hated going to the gym. I hated it when I was on the team. I hated lifting weights. There was, you know, so I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to be fit? So um, I didn't have a lot of money. I had runners though. So I just started running and I basically, I basically. At 230 pounds, <laughs> it's hard to just start running. Did it was you start like a walk, walk run. Okay, I was yeah. going to say. <laughs> it was I'm thinking walk you walked for a bit, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So luckily I was, um exposed to some some very high level trainers in the sport so I was still coaching at this point I um had been recruited to Alberta freestyle so I was actually coaching the Alberta mogul team which was a completely different ball game way more support over there um I had an awesome team awesome parents great association not like Ontario was bad or anything it was just a a very different different vibe yeah um and uh so there was this one trainer I was telling him, I'm like, yo, I'm running and I'm dying. Like, can you give me one tip? I won't take up much of your time. Mm-hmm. Just give me one tip. And he's like, okay, here's my tip. Get a heart rate monitor 
and don't let your heart rate go over 180 minus your age. So I was 30. So he's like, don't let your heart rate go over 150. And I was like, I think my heart rate's at like 200 when I'm running. I'm like, this is going to be hard. He's like, get, don't let your ego get involved. Just walk. As soon as your heart rate's at 150, walk. And I was like, all right, I'm doing it. And I, I like kept me essentially like in my fat burning yeah. zone. I was like, I didn't know any of this at the time, but well, I did. And but that's going to vary. Really... Like I want people to kind of think that's true. It's going to vary depending on what is needed. You needed to just shed weight. I needed to shed like, weight. I needed to feel right. good in my body. I needed to feel good running. And that's when I actually mm-hmm. fell in love with running. Cause before I was like, I was just doing it. And then when I took a step back and slowed down, I realized like it became sort of like a meditation for me it became uh, my outlet and just staying in that fat burning zone, if you will, like my aerobic, staying at my aerobic threshold was um, uh, so beneficial for my brain and for my body. And I did, I, it helped, I didn't really lose weight running uh, for the first little bit. I did fall in love with it. Um, It wasn't until I decided, this was probably in 2011, so like a year later, again, I'm a slow moving snail with these life lessons, <laughs> but uh, I changed my diet. So I was like, okay. So you were running, but you were still drinking and eating? Uh, I Maybe not say, drinking as much, but... I would say I drank less. I ate less. I wasn't gaining weight anymore. I was I was maybe losing a little bit of weight. I know, mm-hmm. In all honesty, yeah. I was probably losing weight. It was like slow. Um, but then I was like, okay... Alisa, you do nothing um, slowly. Let's drastically change again. So I, I was feeling so. I was actually feeling internal uh, pain in my gut. I was having like symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. I thought maybe I was a celiac. So I was like, you know what? I went for testing. I did all the tests, the colonoscopies, the mm. this, the that. I was in the hospital getting injections for like um, um, nausea because you know, stress manifests in your body different, in everybody Mm -hmm. differently. And for me at this point, like I was leaving my husband, I was moving in with my mom. I'm 30 years old. So there's that voice saying, Oh, you're a loser. And then there's this other voice saying, no, you know, you're doing, this is, you need to change your life. You, you, you need to set, you know, a new standard for yourself. And, and so, (laughs) so yeah, so I was, it, Change in all forms for me is a stress, whether it's a positive change or a negative change. Um, but they I, didn't come back and tell you that you had irritable bowel syndrome. They, they Did they come back and say you need to change the way you're eating? <laughs> no, they just, no, not at all. They were like, you're essentially, they said I had signs of irritable bowel, yeah. but, um, you know, the medical, I'm not going to bash the medical system, but they, they, there it's easy to give someone a pill to get rid of the symptom versus like make serious change so what I decided to do was I like I like cut out everything out of my diet like all gluten dairy sugar so hard alcohol caffeine uh processed foods so basically all I ate was like meat fish nuts vegetables and some fruit for a year I did that for a year and uh, uh, people thought I was crazy and I didn't care. I was literally eating clean. There's a lot of clean eating mm-hmm. diets out there. This was like the cleanest of the clean. And that's when the weight just like melted off. 
not only that, just eating that way created the most mental, like I had the most mental clarity ever in my life. And I found, I found, I connected with myself during that year. It was, it was a spiritual journey. It was like a physical transformation, but it was, uh, it was literally the most life-changing thing. It, it taught me more about myself than anything that the Olympics or my sports career ever, ever could. I am responsible for myself. That's what it ta- taught me, essentially. You know, there's people that are getting to watch this segment on YouTube, right? So they see this beautiful, blonde, gorgeous woman in front of them, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's so interesting to kind of hear that from you knowing where it came from Mm -hmm. would you say now so you're about five years six years five years out from that full yeah transformation would you say around that yep so Uh, yeah and the five-year mark is usually a big you know in any relationship there's Mm -hmm. like five years is is a pretty good like have you consistent have you maintained that where's the consistency I know with your podcast it's you're still very spiritual yeah um and I sometimes I feel even your podcasts are almost your therapy sessions yeah is that fair to say yeah well I bring Adele Yoda on we actually do (laughs) Yoda yeah we do therapy sessions (laughs) Um, because I want to share all the things that I've learned. So yeah, at the five year, I mean, I've gone through some change. So I decided that I didn't want to be traveling so long, so far away, um, uh, coaching anymore. So I, a couple of years ago, actually two years, basically this summer, um, I quit my job coaching. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, it was like, um, um, yeah, it's another stress. You were almost 11 years coaching, right? I was um, yeah. just over 11, yeah. almost 12. Um, anyways, we, I, I went through this other huge life transformation. So these lessons were presenting themselves to me in a different way. You know, sometimes it's hard to recognize them when they come back because I haven't necessarily learned from them 100% or let them go. So it was like all these like um, things coming back around. And, um, but I was in a place where I could see or at least recognize them for what they are, not necessarily do anything about it, or I didn't necessarily know what to do, but I knew that this was happening and that alone changed my reaction, um, to, to everything. I, so, so yeah, I, at this point, um, that's kind of why I wanted to start the podcast was because like all these little steps, I mean, we've kind of fast forwarded mm-hmm. through the last yeah. 15 years, but I've experienced a lot of crazy stuff. And with this, I don't want to say new sense of awareness, but like with my, with yeah. my perspective on life these days, um, I've, I just naturally noticed that I connected with a lot of people and I started Instagram and I was connecting with mm-hmm. a lot of people on my Instagram account that grew really quickly. Um, and I blog a little bit there. So I, I started the podcast just to like say a little bit more about my life. So there's a lot of like deep, dark secrets. <laughs> People like listen and they're like, I feel like I know you. You're like my best friend. And I'm like, well, you do know me. Yeah. Because I yeah, and you're, say very, very intimate things. Yeah. And you might just you watch on your Insta stories. <laughs> You'll see her having her coffee and her breakfast. Like you share. Yeah. Is it therapeutic for you to share so much of your life now? Or it keeps you accountable yeah. or like, cause you know, you can do podcasts and you can do Instagram and yeah. I'm not as, you know, I don't think I've done one with me getting up in the morning, having a coffee with no makeup <laughs> and my hair in a bun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like you're, you're very open. Yeah. I, I think 
it's I I I don't I never thought of it that way. It just kind of evolved into what it is. I am I like making connections mm. with awesome people and through the Instagram platform I've been able to do that. I've I've met people all over the world. In fact, this morning I just met this guy from Cape Town. He's awesome and like we share a lot of things in common and you know that's it. So I get to learn through his experiences is as well. Is he cute? Is he single? Like, are you <laughs> I don't know. Are you dating? <laughs> I am not dating. Uh, I'm not dating. For more information, <laughs> you can message her. Yeah. yeah. Would you are you looking forward to dating again? Are you do you think you're in that in that capacity now in a healthy state that you find yourself in the right kind of a relationship? Um that's a really great question. I I relation Okay. I have post divorce. I did date someone for five years, and then I dated this other um, amazing person for about a year. We are still friends now, um, but we, I, I decided that I wanted to work on my relationship with myself, and that sounds so I don't know cliche or something these days, but really I don't think I'm ready or at the like when I decided to do this I didn't think I was ready to just go into a relationship because I didn't want someone else to fill my cup I needed to learn the tools to fill my own cup period so you know I it's not to say that I'm ne- I'm not looking mm-hmm. um I I do get asked out every now and then <laughs> um but I'm just I don't know I really enjoy my life right now I'm That's... living in such a unique way I yeah it's a great way to, to be. Like, yeah. And you say that with such a big, vibrant smile. If you had, because I've got to wrap this up, but if you had a piece of advice to give to maybe let's go to your 14-year-old self as you're mm-hmm. heading into this so that I can give it to other young athletes too, so that they learn that life is more than just their sport. Like what would, what would you say? I would say to my 14-year-old self, ooh, that's deep. That's so Well, that's where the change happened, right? Yeah. It was where you, life. I would probably, I would probably say a million things to my 14-year-old self, but if there's one thing, it would be to trust your instincts. Listen to your instinct. (laughs) That's it. Like, it's, like, the world is always feeding you information, and I was claiming to, I was living my life possibly based on other people's belief and what the world expected of me as an athlete instead of like listening to myself and trusting in myself I think you trusted in yourself most when you were 30 looking into that mirror kind of uh, yeah that that, that for was... me seems like that biggest trust moment yep. like I'm gonna find myself again yep and even when things are going bad right now which they do let me tell you Um, I have to like snap out of it by like bringing that awareness back in and being like, trust in yourself. Yeah. And it's just an oops sometimes rather than this negative thought (laughs) because it's, it's not, you don't just do one quick fix and it's good. It's a, it's a constant, like there's no magic pill. Yeah. It's constantly having kind of, yeah, it's it's constant work, but it's good work. (laughs) It's fabulous. Because you're sitting here just like vibrant and glowing and saying it was all definitely worth it. People can find you where I know you're on Instagram. Uh, people can find the podcast. So um, on Instagram, my account is at Elisa Currylowitz. Should I spell that? Uh, it'll be written, it'll be yeah, written and somewhere. People have, yeah. Um, and then my podcast is on iTunes. It's on Google Play. It's called Elisa Unfiltered, Living Life Out Loud. I'm actually in the. I, I actually am taking a eight week summer break. Good for you. Um, 
just to give myself some time to live my life a little mm-hmm. bit. It does take up a lot of time. Uh, but it is very, it's a very cool podcast. It is uh, all about me, guys. It's all about me. <laughs> it is what it is. I did it. Is you what are, it is. No, no, I know. No, it, like, I did it. I, no, I did no, it. Yeah. It was really good because I did it just not long after I had left. Yes. Right? And yes. so for sometimes it's therapy like you're telling your story or where you're coming from or the trials and tribulations or the roller coaster ride yeah, you know 100%. we all definitely have it and you've been able to uh, to get that out from a lot of people yeah. it's so nice it's so wait you were 14 when we I think we started yeah, yeah. I'm I to carry the eight minus the one hey we're still young <laughs> we're it was nice to be able to have the interview session again <laughs> in a very different setting uh, and there you have it thanks so much it thank was great. you uh, and once again thanks so much for listening to Living Your Life with Leanne Lang and once again brought to you by Extension Marketing have a great day great I really had Kevin and Ryder good beauty I need some of this water I wanted to reach for it like a million times yeah. but what happens when we play outside We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.